Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Industry Focus. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, January 24th, and we are talking Netflix and Alphabet. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Dan Klein. Dan, what's going on, man? Uh, our long nightmare in, in South Florida is over. It's no longer 50 degrees. We're back up to <laughs> 70. People can put their fur coats and scarves away. We live different lives during the uh, winter <laughs> months, Dan. I'm actually I'm going snowboarding tomorrow, so we're I, living I very different my, lives. I went to the hot tub on the 55-degree day. Like, it, <laughs> it was a little cold getting out. But people here absolutely don't know how to deal with any sort of weather. And I also can say I did not see any falling iguanas. <laughs> well, Florida, I think, is making you a little bit soft, Dan. I got to be honest. As someone who grew up in the Northeast, I think you got to work I, on that. <laughs> I, think, I, I think there's a reason I'm doing this show from home and not in studio today. <laughs> Well, um, I'm having you on because we're talking about Netflix and Alphabet. We're going to be talking about the streaming space, and you are one of my favorite people to talk to when it comes to streaming. And I think if you look over the last couple of years, you know, there's a lot of debate about when the golden age of television was. I would say right now might be the golden age of television for consumers. You know, in terms of options and great deals for creators, especially people that maybe haven't had voices before, it's a pretty awesome time to be a viewer. There's so much excellent content coming out there because all these companies are hopping into the space. Now, that means that the space is also getting a little bit more competitive if you're a streaming company. Yeah, and we've also had the end of, maybe not the full end, but the stigma of doing television. When you see major name actresses like Nicole Kidman doing a limited edition series on HBO, that's a big change. And maybe movies have lost a little bit of luster. It's hard to make a mid-price movie now, but that's very much been television and streaming's gain. Yeah, there's a lot of cachet being uh, thrown around. I mean, you think about like the HBO series True Detective and what that did for Matthew McConaughey. Um, <laughs> You know, and you look at what he did as a movie actor. We kind of have the reconnaissance because of uh, TV. So, so I think we can all thank streaming television for that one, Dan. Yeah, and th there's just more work. And you know, if you're an actor and you no longer have to commit to a grueling 22 episode, eight months of the year shoot, and instead could do, you know, The Mandalorian was eight episodes. Uh, you can put more time and care into a short-run show, and sometimes you can tell a show in the amount of time it takes. A certain story maybe doesn't need 22 episodes. Uh, you know, I recently finished the third season of Daredevil on Netflix, and it didn't need to be any longer. It was really good, but it got the story out there in a sort of non-traditional time frame. You mentioned The Mandalorian. Of course, this is a show from Disney Plus, part of that Disney IP library. And the launch of Disney Plus was really one of the biggest stories in streaming for 2019. Um, we are talking about streaming and Netflix today because we have some updated earnings numbers from Netflix and some commentary from management. And what it seems like is, as people might expect, the entrant of a big, deep-pocketed player like Disney is starting to have some effect on Netflix. 
it's having a very mild effect. And the reality is Netflix post it posted 8.76 million new subscribers. It caused an uproar because it missed slightly on its U.S. subscriber prediction. So, of course, people flip out. Are people dropping Netflix? Are they getting Disney Plus? And the reality is, as people cut the cord, there's going to be multiple tiers of streaming. And Netflix and Disney Plus are both, for most people, going to be in the you-have-to-have-them tier. If you have a family, you pretty much need Disney Plus. If you want a depth of content, then Netflix is probably going to be what you have. So I don't put a lot of stock in the there's more competition. You know, CBS didn't go out of business. And I read this somewhere. I apologize for whoever I'm cribbing this from. CBS didn't go out of business when Fox launched. There, there's sort of a, an endless demand and the universe keeps getting smaller and more niche and that's bad for water cooler discussion but it's probably good for people who like television that doesn't have to attract 12 million viewers you know it's funny on the walk to the studio today austin said after he goes through the marvel universe of movies he is done with disney plus gonna be taking a break i'd be curious to see i want to check in on that in a couple months because there are a lot of people i think who look at all these streaming options and they say okay well there's a lot of stuff in this catalog i want to watch but then it's not going to come out again. We're not going to get that update for another year or so. So I don't need it. Those are really yeah. good intentioned ideas. But the reality is people are lazy and they're not so great at canceling services. So Austin, if I remember correctly, has a fiance but not a family. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, I, I have a – and you and you have a, a girlfriend but not kids. Um, I have a 15-year-old and a wife. So – I'm mostly done with Netflix. There's really nothing except the occasional comedy special that I'm super eager to watch, and I'm in the midst of catching up on the Arrowverse, uh, which I'm, I've been watching on the CW app because I'm ahead of where Netflix has. So I could drop Netflix, but the reality is, one, T-Mobile pays for the vast majority of my Netflix. Two, my wife loves Netflix and watches hours and hours of it when I'm not there. So it's become a bigger decision, and Disney Plus – for an adult, you could argue you could come in and out. Watch the movies you want to watch. When a big series comes out, maybe Austin really wants to watch the Loki series, so maybe wait till all six episodes of that are out and sign up for a month and watch them and a couple other things. You can pick and choose, but honestly, for most people, $6.99 a month isn't that much money, especially if you dropped a cable subscription where you were paying $140 or $150. So I don't really think budget is going to be a factor, and the average single person might be able to, to hop from services. People with who are sharing these services with other people in the house, I probably can't get rid of Disney Plus because my son's watching Clone Wars, and maybe he wants to catch up on that, and then something will come up that I like. So... I think the lesser services are going to suffer, but the biggest services will probably just become perennials for most people. Dan, you're not in the studio, so you couldn't see Austin's reaction to you saying that Netflix is something that you don't love, you don't need in the same way. He was visibly disgusted. Um, I am I am a Netflix subscriber, as is Austin. I think, to your point, we don't have families, so we don't see the same value in Disney+. And I agree with you. I think some of the blowback with Netflix's earnings and these numbers are a little it's a little overblown. You know, the the fact that they added over 8 million new streaming subscribers and they crushed expectations. It was 7.8 million for expectations, 8.7 in actual additions. It shows that there's still a lot of uh, runway and a lot of resonance with what Netflix is offering people. 
Yeah, and average revenue per user is up 9%, which is basically due to the price increase. So they raised prices, which is not a well they're going to be able to go to all that often because they're already high in the space they're in. But if they're on sort of like a Costco-like every few years schedule, they've shown they could do that. And to give people perspective, there are 84 million cable customers, cable and satellite, uh, that includes streaming in the U.S., and Netflix has 61 million subscribers just in the United States. So 75% of the audience of every cable channel, Netflix has already reached. So it makes sense that their U.S. growth is going to slow down. And I think they have been hurt. It's not Disney Plus specifically that hurt them with new subscribers. It's The Mandalorian. It's Netflix has not had a buzzy show that everyone was talking about. And you and I have talked about this personally. I think Netflix hurts itself by releasing every episode at once because The Mandalorian was an eight-week story. It was part of the zeitgeist. People talked about it. And Stranger Things is like a 72-hour story. Yeah, I, I think – that's 100% right, Dan. One thing that um, I am noting a little bit with this quarter and want to continue to watch with Netflix going forward is what churn looks like. You know, we've kind of taken for granted that there's a certain stickiness to Netflix and that people are generally super satisfied with the platform. Um, Netflix is kind of one of those companies like Apple where the people who have it seem to absolutely love it and it's part of their routine. But um, as more people come into the space, you need to be aware of the people that are leaving, particularly because if they are making that decision between paying, you know, $12 for Netflix and $7 for Disney Plus, and they only want one, they might go cheaper, or if they're a family, they might go with the Disney Plus option instead. So Netflix has sort of a predictable churn pattern, and they address this in the, the uh, earnings call. Basically, in, in the second quarter, they released a whole bunch of highly anticipated shows, uh, sequels to things that had done well, a couple of big-name Hollywood movies starring uh, one with Ryan Reynolds, uh, I think one with Will Smith. I might be getting the timing wrong on that. And sometimes people will join for a quarter, watch a bunch of stuff, and leave and wait until a new show is released that they want. So there's always going to be some churn, but we have not seen any significant amount of pattern of like, I'm only getting Netflix one month a year, or I'm going to be on for six months, off for six months. Their numbers have steadily moved up, and the churn number, it did. It inched up a tiny bit in the quarter, and it's something we should keep an eye on. But I think as long as Netflix can put out content people want – people will keep it. Now, the problem is they released a stunning 802 hours of content in the fourth quarter, which is a record and 38% higher than the same period last year. And Dylan, let me ask you, can you name three Netflix shows from that were released in the last quarter? You know, I don't think I can, not not as a consumer. Um, you know, I, I realize as you asked me that, like a lot of the stuff that I've been streaming recently is old stuff on Hulu, um, I haven't really been watching Netflix all that much, and uh, that's that's because I think you know you get really into a series, and that's what you start watching for a while. But to your point, Dan, no, I can't. Yeah, I mean, I could name three comedy specials because those seem to feature prominently in my feed. Comedy specials are also generally downloadable, whereas some of the series are not. And you know, I'm on a plane uh, a fair amount, so. To watch, you know, some mindless comedy special is easier than to decide I'm going to take on The Witcher or, uh, you know, or a very serious, heavy show. So I do think Netflix has to focus a little better. And they also had there was a long time where if Netflix produced a show, you could be pretty confident you were going to get a few seasons and a logical conclusion. They've been much more willing to cancel a series, which has been made me much less likely to watch a show. I generally have a rule that I don't watch season one until I know there's going to be a season two. Uh, in some series, they've 
they've eliminated that by telling you there's going to be a season two before season one airs. But in a lot of cases, something might look promising, and I'm not going to invest that time if it's not going to be a satisfying experience because it ends abruptly. There's an emotional investment that comes with watching TV, Dan. I 100% hear you on that one. You know, you don't want to get invested in these characters, invest in these plot lines, and then just have the rug pulled out from underneath you. Yeah, and I think it's okay if something airs for one series, towards the end of it, they realize uh, it's not going to make it, and they just conclude it, and it just becomes a one-season show. I think that's fine. But if you stop, start watching something from the beginning, and then like eight months later, you can't wait to find out what happens, and they, they don't even put out a press release telling you like, hey, this is what would have happened if the show went on, <laughs> it's it's very upsetting. And frankly, it's a waste of my time, and, and time is valuable. <laughs> So you're not enjoying the journey. You want to know the full arc, Dan. <laughs> I've always been a person who uh, reads the last page of the book first. <laughs> like, like, I, I, I want to know how it unfolds. But like the example I'll give is I, I've seen the latest Star Wars movie. And I and for like the two people who haven't seen it, I won't give any spoilers. But I can't wait till the book comes out because now I know what happens. But I want all the details filled in. That's uh. always more interesting to me than necessarily the uh, – exactly what happens. Well, I'm one of the two people that haven't seen it yet, so please don't spoil it for me. I'm the other one. <laughs> it's all about Baby Yoda. Who would have thought we're all aggregated in one studio, the two people that haven't seen the new Star Wars movie? <laughs> um, Dan, while we have been dogging some of the content releases from Netflix, I think it's worth underscoring they have been wildly successful with most of the stuff that they've released, at least in terms of the like tentpole franchises that they're trying to get out there, and they've been very successful when it comes to the award show circuit. Yeah, I mean, that, that, look, they led all studios with 24 Academy Award nominations. They put out a huge, you know, Michael Bay film, Six Underground, starring Ryan Reynolds, uh, that was watched by 83 million households. Now, when we say watch, let's remember that the Netflix metrics for watch is now two minutes of a show. So, in theory, you don't have to get very far into a movie and turn it off for them to still consider that you watched it. But obviously, they've figured out a way to be both prestigious and to have sort of lowbrow stuff like Adam Sandler movies that people are just going to watch reflexively. I'm actually talking more with the content about the other 760 hours where you, you log into Netflix and you'll see like eight new series and you won't know what any of them are about. You didn't see any media coverage. And I'm sure some of those are designed to keep 400 or 500,000 Netflix subscribers very happy and it's very specific programming. But I do think they probably need to get their batting average a little bit higher to control their costs more. So for folks that may be a little concerned about some of this competitive stuff that we're talking about, especially if you're a Netflix shareholder, um, it's important to realize stock took a little bit of a hit. It is right back up to where it was. So this is not a long-term ongoing thing. This is just kind of some short-term reaction uh, from the market. And the, the key quote in looking at the letter from shareholders uh, came from executives and said, our low membership growth in the US and Canada is probably due to our recent price changes and to US competitive launches. I think going forward, Anytime you see management talking about the competitive landscape and streaming, um, there is going to be some concern just because this is a pure play company. They don't have some of the benefits that a Disney does with a massive IP library and all of these other ancillary businesses. Um, they are going in alone, and uh, it's going to be a little harder for them. It, it is. And I think it's very important. So just like I don't think you should look at any retail store one quarter of same store sales to make a decision. 
most of the time, it, historically, when Netflix has missed on a subscriber count number, their timing's just a little off. So a couple of quarters ago, they were, I think, almost 2 million off on the total number. And then the next quarter made that up and then some. So Netflix is not magic. They can't exactly predict just because they're releasing a new movie or show that people want to watch if they're going to sign up on November 1st or December 15th. So I think you do want to look at the long-term trends and make sure that they're hitting roughly what they say they're going to hit on an annual basis. But I don't think you should put a lot of stock in their 200,000 down here, their a million five up there. That's just not the most important metrics. It's are they engaging people? Are they continue to drive forward? And are they growing in countries where they don't have the same programming base, at least in the native language, that they do in the US? And they're checking off all of those boxes. Yeah, I would add to that too. If they're able to continue to raise prices without creating uh, huge hikes in churn, that shows that they have pricing power. It shows that they have the ability to put out great content that people feel is worth paying for. Uh, and that's another sign that they have a resilient business. Yeah, I question whether they'll hit a pricing wall. You know, $19.99 is a commonly used price for a reason. Once you go <laughs> over that, uh, it's people start to think about the cost of things. Uh, but it would not be crazy to think that the Netflix of the future, and I'm talking seven, eight years from now, might have a sports tier. It might have a pay a dollar ninety nine extra and you get all sorts of uh, Japanese anime or, or who knows what it is. It doesn't have to look exactly like it looks now. And you're seeing that with the with the Comcast Peacock launch that they have multiple tiers and multiple offers and different deals if you're a Comcast customer. So Netflix could do that. They also could continue to do things like their T-Mobile partnership that defray the cost. So maybe five years from now, Netflix costs twenty four ninety nine, but but every ISP in the country is paying for half of that for you because you're using you know, your internet to watch Netflix primarily. You know, it's not just the golden age as a viewer. It might also be the golden age as a bundler, Dan. There are a lot of really good deals out there, <laughs> and that's a great point. It's it's very tricky because I mean, you know we, we the next one we're going to be talking about in in the is NBC's Peacock and I don't mean on this show I mean in in the next time we we talk about these things and they're basically giving it away. There's an ad supported tier. There's free offers for their customers. So is their product inferior to to Netflix and Disney Plus? I would argue that for most people, yes, it is. It doesn't have the content, <laughs> but if it's free, it becomes like Amazon Prime. Maybe when you're bored, you decide to watch The Tick and see if it's good or, or Man in the High Castle or, or whatever it is, and it doesn't have to be the driver, and then all of a sudden you have it, and Comcast has the ability to sort of, and so does Apple, to sort of disguise how you pay for it. If you're getting Apple Plus for free and they raise the price of the iPhone by $30 accordingly, or a Mac, you don't really know that they've done that. And Comcast can kind of do the same thing with internet pricing or cable pricing. So it's not going to be a straightforward market, and there's going to be an awful lot of winners and you know the only real losers are going to be the very small players all right we're going to talk about how new alphabet ceo sundar pichai plans on running the business we're going to check in on alphabet a little bit too but before we do a quick word from our sponsor grammarly thanks to grammarly for supporting our podcast grammarly is a writing assistant that makes you look and sound smarter whether at school work or when you're on the go there's a free version that can be downloaded by anyone on their computer and phone, and it helps review critical spelling and grammar errors. And Grammarly Premium gives you more advanced help, looking also at advanced punctuation, structure, style, vocabulary, conciseness, tone, and readability for different occasions. 
We have several writers on Fool.com that use Grammarly before they hit submit, and let me tell you, it has definitely helped cut down on the editing rounds with our in-house team. Dan, you actually use Grammarly. Yeah, I use Grammarly in two different ways. So as a writer, you know, Dylan, I write pretty quickly. Yeah, you do. Uh, <laughs> and when you write quickly, you make mistakes. The one I, I see the most in Grammarly is I repeat the same word. And that's not a giant deal for copy editor, but when you make the same mistake over and over again, it's annoying. And Grammarly catches all of that. Grammarly can also tell you, hey, there's nothing really wrong here, but it kind of doesn't feel right. On the other hand, I also do some editing on, on another one of our projects, and we're onboarding a bunch of new writers. And I use Grammarly not just to check their grammar, but I also use Grammarly to – the paid version has a plagiarism check, and it will check their work against – the rest of the internet, and you can know, hey, they stole this and that's bad, or hey, in this case, they didn't steal it, but they're 5% like this source material, and maybe they need to do a better job in putting things into their own words. So I think Grammarly, the free version is amazing, and the paid version, if you happen to be an editor, is a is an absolute godsend, because the last thing you want to do is put out plagiarized work or you know something that has a mistake you don't see that the Grammarly algorithm will absolutely pick up. Listeners, if you want to give Grammarly a shot, go to Grammarly.com slash fool to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash fool for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. All right, Dan, so we have our newest entrant to the $1 trillion club, Alphabet. And this is the parent company of Google. They finally hopped into the four comma club, as Russ Hanneman from Silicon Valley might put it. Um, and I think that this company has kind of flown under the radar for a little while. There's been so much going on uh, in the world of big tech, and they've just kind of been chugging along. But thanks to this $1 trillion valuation, them peaking past that number, and some shakeups in management, I think it's worth checking in on them because there's a lot going on. First of all, do you think they get like a plaque or a jacket or like some sort of one trillion dollar club notification? Like, I think it's probably like when we passed a hundred thousand subscribers on our YouTube channel. You know, YouTube sends you a little plaque when you uh, when you pass a hundred thousand and a million. We have to work a little bit more to get to the million, but I'd like to think that like the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq reaches out. So sending my son a picture of myself with that plaque might be the only thing that ever impressed him. <laughs> so, which, and I'll point out that plaque is just sitting sort of haphazardly on a table in the office. It's not displayed anywhere. It's not. But to a 15-year-old, that kind of meant dad was famous in an indirect way. <laughs> I'm happy to help you with your kids, Dan. And I'm happy to help folks on YouTube, too. I love working on that side of our business. YouTube, of course, a, a Google property. Um, so, to get people up to speed quickly on what is going on with this company, um, we have some major news items. We have founder Larry Page stepping down as CEO of Alphabet, uh, the parent company of Google, and the former Google CEO, Sundar Pichai, is now running both Google and Alphabet. And I think we need to have a brief history lesson on the movement from Google being the name of the company to now Alphabet being the name of the company. This happened back in 2015. And they moved to this holding company structure because they felt like it would allow them to better break out their financials in a way that represented the business. But it also put them in a position where they would have all of these discrete business segments that would allow for individual executive teams. Sundar Pichai was the person who ran Google as it was kind of shelved off and identified as its own internet property unit. And it seems to me like with this move, it was probably done with the intent to eventually groom him to become CEO. Yeah, I think that's fully accurate. And it was done for shareholder transparency. And this is actually somewhat rare in the technology world. They didn't want 
the success of Google and YouTube and, and, and search and paid ads and all the company's successes to disguise how much they were investing in, you know, it's, it's, it's big bets. It's moonshots business. They wanted you to be able to look at something like Waymo. It's a driverless car company and say, okay, this is what we're putting in and this is what we're getting out of it. This structure also allows for some of those businesses that are heavy investment and, and could pay off well to take on outside investment or have different boards of directors and different structures. And that's happened in a, in, in one or two cases, but basically, this is all about sort of showing people what they're doing with their money in a way that's, I think, very refreshing. I was a huge fan of it when they decided to do it. Um, I, I knew that we were going to be kind of getting some more details down the line. We have them now. But if you want a quick like 10,000-foot view of what goes on with their financials, the internet property business, like you mentioned before, Google, YouTube, all the things that you think of when you think Google, for the most part, as a consumer, that's like 99.5% of how they make their money. They have their other bet segment where they have all of these moonshot projects, like you mentioned before, about 0.5% of their revenue coming from there. So, this was really a move towards more financial transparency, gave us a much better lens into the core business, and then also how much they were investing in this other stuff. Um, now, what we're seeing is over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of management at Alphabet deciding, you know, we need to be thinking a little bit more critically about some of these projects. Yeah, it's it's sort of all fun and games to say we're going to change the world, we're going to do all these things. But when you realize you've spent $8 billion on, on what they call other bets uh, and you've only brought a, a $1.5 billion back, maybe there is a need to be more responsible. And the reality is, Google doesn't have to change the world itself. It can take a project to a certain point and then it's investable and you can bring other people in. And there's obviously a lot of money out there that wants to work with Google that can partner and take risk away from shareholders. As a business, Google has been a growth story all year, up 17% in the first quarter, 19 in the second, I think it was 20 in the third, uh, you know, 40.5 billion in the third quarter. So the numbers are great, but you haven't seen those new hits. None of those projects have moved beyond, uh, you know, into the real world. And we've seen some failures. Google Glasses was largely a failure. So again, this is about accountability and setting up structures for these businesses where they might have a chance to win and become successful companies in their own right. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think they are in a pretty privileged position as a company because they have this legacy. It's crazy to call Google search legacy, but it is legacy in the, in the eyes of kind of the, the alphabet holding company. They have this business that creates a ton of money. It's very high margin, and it's still growing at, like you said, high teens, 20%. That gives them so much cash to do stuff with. And um, Sergey Brin and Larry Page have really wanted people to think outside the box and have these really innovative ideas. To give you a sense of what some of these other bets look like, there's Waymo, which was kind of formally known as the self-driving car project. There's Sidewalk Labs, uh, which is a smart city technology startup. There's Verily, which is in life sciences. Calico, Project X, Capital G. There are a ton of these. You can only get to the position where you're funding all of these little bets because you have so much money on hand. Yeah, and you know what they also don't talk a lot about is there's a tremendous amount of money invested in evolving search and YouTube and the other successful Google products. That's a very competitive landscape. But these are all theoretically huge ideas. I mean, if you could become the lead company in self-driving cars, that's obviously something that's going to be at least in certain markets a very big area and 
this is giving accountability to that and making it so, you know, maybe some of these companies will be shut down. Maybe some of them will be acquired. Maybe they'll partner. There's all different ways to do it. And by putting it all in this one system uh, and sort of taking the emotion of the founders out of it, uh, it gives Google a better position. It's better for shareholders. I mean, if I was an investor, I'm not sure how much of my money I want put into 10 projects that are all very risky. This isn't uh, YouTube launching a, a new show. This is you know billions of dollars of investment for things that may not pan out that others are also trying to do, so there's no guarantee you win. I am a uh, an Alphabet shareholder, Dan, and I will say I will kind of look at this business as something where they have a monopoly in one of the greatest pieces of real estate you can possibly have. You know, their their web page is the homepage for a lot of people who have Google Chrome, and it is the default search engine if you're in the United States for sure. So they have a business that's not going anywhere, and it's pretty much a monopoly. And all of these other bets are basically lottery ticket type investments where they're putting money in and it feels like a lot because, yeah, it starts with a B, it's billions. But these are businesses that could wind up being really, really big down the road. And maybe they start to lessen their exposure to them. Sundar Pichai has talked about how they may follow a model very similar to what they've done with Verily, where they've gotten some outside investors, they've created an independent board. But I look at those and I say, even if they wind up getting some other folks to help fund some of this stuff, they're still going to have pretty big exposure, and if any of these ideas take off, then boom, you know that's another great business for this company. Yeah, and this becomes what I think of as the Apple problem. So if you look at Apple revenue and you look at, say, the watch, it doesn't really feel that successful. But when you look at the overall wearables market and the percentage of it Apple has and the growth numbers it's putting up, if that was a standalone company, we'd all be fighting to buy it. Uh, And to a lesser extent, you could say that with a lot of other things they've done. They're so big that having a hit that moves the needle just isn't that hard. You know, it's very, very hard. So in this case for Google, they spent uh, roughly 2.7 billion in the first three uh, quarters of the year, and they only brought in about 500 million on that. So they're losing a lot of money on these. But in the bigger picture of Google, what's you know what's a three billion dollar a year investment? It's not that much. And if one of these ideas pays off, even in kind of a mild way, they're they're playing in such a big space that it will probably work. But for something to be considered successful for Google, it has to be absolutely gigantic. And the reason we're talking about the other bets is uh, Sundar Pichai gave an interview recently where he indicated that kind of following in the footsteps of Ruth Porat, the CFO that they brought in who had more of a Wall Street background, um, he is going to be looking at a lot of these operations with some more discipline. And so you could expect some outside investors to be coming in. And I think you might start to see Alphabet look a little bit more critically at some of these operations. They obviously want to find that next massive growth lever for them, but I think they also want to be wary of spending too much money on those things. Yeah, and look, you need to be aware of where your investment is going. And when anybody starts a business like this, they do a business plan, just like if you and I were starting a coffee shop. And there are milestones, and you want dreamers, but you also want numbers people to say, hey, you said you'd be here at this point, and you're not. And to make a decision, can you get back to that? Or have you proven out that there isn't a market for this? Or in the case of something like Waymo, did so many people enter this space that maybe you should buy something, maybe you should partner with somebody else huge? There's a lot of decisions to be made, and they shouldn't necessarily be made by the idea guy. They should be made by the idea guy holding hands with a very responsible CFO type. And Sundar Bachai seems to be putting in some of that discipline. 
All right, we are going to wrap the Netflix and Alphabet discussion there. Uh, Before we wrap up today's show, though, I want to kick it over to our iTunes reviews. As I've mentioned on the past couple Friday episodes, if folks give us a five-star review in iTunes, go on and read that review and answer any questions they might have in the review on the air. Give them a little love. We always appreciate getting uh, some love from our listeners. And if you want something uh, discussed on the show, just write in industryfocus at fool.com, or you can get us at mfindustryfocus on Twitter as well. Um, So, Nightsbud writes in, very good podcast, has helped me understand markets, things to look at, look into, be aware of, and best of all, helps me get my retirement portfolio in order. They do a great job with keeping things interesting, on topic, yet are still able to mix in humor, real life, and break away from the topic to keep the show fun. Dan, I think you're particularly good at that. That's one of the reasons I love having you on the show, is you always bring the humor into it. I, I appreciate that. It's uh, we are called the Motley Fool, so I I try to bring a little of that to every interview. hundred percent. We got to have some good uh, good fun with this. Um, MJW writes in. I listen daily and love it. I'm also digging the new intro and the checks and balances track. Austin Morgan just threw his hands up in the air. And don't worry, MJW, we're going to be playing today's episode out with that checks and balances track as well. Um, MJW goes on, I'm more excited for the new Wednesday show to, because I typically would skip the Wednesday healthcare episode. Keep it up, guys. Um, and I know that we've had some listeners that have written into the show and said, you know, healthcare was my absolute favorite. Um, I'm bummed that you guys are getting rid of it. The plan for us is to regularly have uh, folks like Todd Campbell on that Wildcard Wednesday episode um, and, and also bring Shannon Jones back for some episodes on healthcare. So if you have a specific healthcare topic you want to uh, you want to hear us talk about, please write in because we're looking for ideas. We want to make sure that we're still scratching that itch for our listeners. Um, but we had to make some programming decisions based on the expertise that we had with the hosts, and so that's kind of how we wound up where we wound up. Dan, I don't think anybody wants you and me alone doing a healthcare episode. No, I mean we could do an episode on CVS or or some of the the consumer related stuff, but I don't think they want us breaking down like you know biopharma stocks. <laughs> I think that's right. You know, I I, I could I'm do that with Todd sure Campbell. That's word. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds right. Uh, I could do a show like that with Todd Campbell, but I, I certainly couldn't do it on my own. And so we're just trying to marry people's expertise with the content that we're going to be covering to make sure we're doing a good job doing that. Uh, and we've got one more here, and this is actually going to tee up something that'll be coming at you guys in a couple weeks or so. Uh, what's what writes in, love the content, love the hosts, getting used to the new intro. Not quite as ringing an endorsement, Austin, but still pretty good getting used to it. Uh, I'm 23 years old, and the whole family of Motley Fool Podcasts has made me more excited and informed about investing. Looking forward to 2020, and a special shout-out to Emily Flippin uh, as she hosts the CGIF show. She's awesome to listen to. One of my favorite episodes to date was Dan Klein and Maury Backman talking about five tips for buying a new home. I'm nowhere near ready to purchase a home, but some great insights to think over the next couple of years. I would love to see an episode about tips for buying a car, uh, because that is something that I had to do recently and couldn't find a ton of content out about it. Fool on Dylan from Boston. Dylan from Boston, thank you for writing it. I appreciate that. Dylan from D.C., uh, reading it here, loves to see another Dylan out there. And he spells it the right way, D-Y-L-A-N. you got to love that. Um, and, and Dan, you are going to be doing this show with Emily. This is like the, the perfect review to cue us up for an episode. Um, you are going to be talking with Emily about the car buying process. Uh, I think an episode for that is going to be going out in March. Yeah, I, th- I think this is a perfect example of how we listen to our feedback. So Emily sent me that comment and said, hey, you did this show. Do you want to do a car buying show? Uh, so she's got a couple of weeks of vacation, so we're taping it next week, but it's actually going to air in March. Uh, and 
if listeners send us good ideas, that's a thousand times easier for us because we don't have to think of ideas. We can just do the things you've asked us to do. So please tell us what you like. Uh, you know, if you tag me at Worst Ideas on Twitter, there's a decent chance I'm going to answer you, even if you say I'm not very good. <laughs> so, so we really want to interact. We want this to be your show. Um, so yeah, really excited to tape that show and also should shout out Nick Seipel, who I think was the host of the, uh, the show on house buying. I think you're right. Yeah. So, so listeners put another way, let us be lazy, you know, come up with ideas for us and then, then we'll be happily talk about them. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for hopping on today's show. I'm looking forward to that car buying episode down the road. Uh, thanks for having me. And People should also remember, check out our YouTube channel. Dylan will not promote his own work, but he runs that stuff, and there's a really a lot of great videos there. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dan. That's too kind. Um, listeners, as Dan mentioned, there's some great stuff on YouTube. Not so many of the podcast episodes there anymore, uh, but some really good investing content for beginners. Um, you can catch it over there. Like we said before, if you're reaching out to the show, industryfocus@fool.com is where you can send those emails, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. Like I mentioned, we're going to play out this episode with our Friday favorite checks and balances from full-time Fool, Burke and Grafia. For Dan Klein, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account, it's parenthetical The money I'm made of is theoretical So in theory I've got it good My fat wallet is on a diet My balance sheet is lopsided My income statement is keeping silent But let's keep one thing understood I need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money Or do you do it for love? My cold hard cash is soft and tropical My deep pockets are merely topical I hit the big time, it was microscopical But don't you get it, I am no fool I own a bank I call him Piggy, brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy, cracked him open, what a pity, his inner life was pitiful. I need checks, I need balances, life's a mess, with financial challenges, checks and balances, when things get tough, do you do it for money, or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on triple coupons Soup kitchen's calling Saying the soup's on I sing for my supper and get my groove on I still know how to have fun checks I need balances life's a mess with financial challenges checks and balances when things get tough do you do it for money or do you do it for love
cheapskate always has a headache trying to get something for free none more wiser is the miser always lives in misery i own a bank i call him piggy brought home the bacon he got a little wiggy cracked him open what a pity his inner life was pitiful i need checks i need balances life's a mess with financial challenges checks and balances when things get tough do you do it for money or do you do it for love do you do it for money or do you do it for love